this is Patrick Attaway, and this is Demise of the Podcast, your favorite podcast about my book, Demise of the Trinity. This is my podcast in which I discuss writing. Sometimes I'll discuss music and film and other books, maybe. But for the first few episodes, I'm just going to be talking about my debut novel. And for this episode, I'm going to talk about a chapter entitled Murray. This is the second chapter that is entitled Murray because the first chapter takes place earlier in the timeline. And the second chapter featuring Murray's perspective is after a lot of this shit hits the fan. And I want to start by reading some of it. I know that you're more accustomed to me talking for a while, but I I thought I'd do a little reading. I know it's been a day since I released the third episode, but since I was late releasing it, I would figured I'd get a head start on the next one. So, without further ado. So, everything I built wasn't enough, Walter says. Sighing with his whiskey rattling in a wet glass, Walter seems to sink lower into the leather sofa we share. I see his point of view, though. When I was a teenager, I thought Walter wasted Lucifer's time, but I see the potential as he now owns the largest media outlet in the world. He controls the news, information, and how the most important technological advancement works, the internet. People believe in Walter Grown as if he's a god here to save them from the government, starvation, and disease. Isn't that what the Antichrist is supposed to do? Gain everyone's trust? I'm going to interject here. Does this remind you of anybody? Uh, I'm getting a hint of our current president, Mr. Donald Trump. And I'm not going to talk about politics here, but I totally am. In that, uh, I see some parallels here. And mind you, I probably wrote this chapter... Anywhere from 2016 to 2018, maybe even earlier than that. And this chapter was sort of a way to bridge the gap and explain a few things because I didn't want to have a chapter from Walter's perspective. I tried that a few times and it didn't really work out. Think of this as a plan B, I say. Veronica is the backup in case someone tries to stop us. Someone... Already wants to, Walter cracks his glass. We had a competitor in the 90s, Fonda Communications. They offered dial-up internet for free until a user's trial ended and they paid for a terrible internet browser, virus protection, and an email address. Paying for an email address today seems like a scam for old people, but then it was a convenient package for those new to the internet. Once Walter revealed DSL in 2000, Fonda became a name you saw on a rotting landfill disc rather than a major corporation. I first heard Hardly Freudland's name last year when he bought Fonda, but I didn't comprehend who he was or his plan until someone attacked our servers in Birmingham. I don't mean a hacker with a laptop tried to send us viruses. A team of armed men broke into the facility and killed our employees and set the building on fire. Restoring internet to Alabama wasn't as easy as running a clean software. While you were rescuing your daughter from a bloodbath, Walter says, 
There was another attack, this time in Tennessee. Listen, I say. If we can find where this Freudlin lives, I'll kill him. How is this any different than Fonda when they almost overtook us before? Son, Walter says. He's hired Ken Price. Or fucked. Another interjection. Earlier in the novel, we first learn of Ken Price in Al's chapter. And he's a little boy. But he's Charles Price's son, so you know he's probably a little fucked up. Now, it's, of course, later revealed right here that Ken is a part of the Trinity. And Walter, uh, well, rather Murray, describes what the Trinity is. Lucifer tried to make his plans for Walter airtight. Ken was supposed to be his plan B. But the man's too selfish and human to serve us. I don't entirely understand why, and Lucifer doesn't either. God created the Trinity. Since Adam and humans arrived, God chose three people to serve as Earth's protectors. Despite their invincibility and predestination to serve God, he gave them free will. They also aged like normal humans. So, imagine falling off a cliff only to dust yourself off without a bruise. Humans shouldn't possess such a power. Each member of the Trinity eventually kills each other in till the last one is left for the next generation. When a member dies, a new one is born immediately. This pertains to Ken Price because Charles Price sold his soul to Lucifer in the 80s. Because of Charles's loyalty, Lucifer saw potential when his wife Nicole got pregnant. Alright, interjection time. I am currently working on my third novel, and I keep going back and forth on whether or not this is a, no- a novel or a novella. And right now I'm expanding it into a novel. It's a two-part novel, kind of like Price of the Trinity is. And there's a plot to part one and a plot to part two. Uh, But the plot to part two right now is a little bit up in the air because the first two chapters that I've worked on, uh, there's a few years between them. But if you've read this book, you're already used to that sort of thing. If time to write. A death in the Trinity can match a particular newborn. So as soon as Ken Price came out of Nicole's vagina, Lester Donaldson passed away. His death was a nursey killing, which some crazy war veteran, Arthur Lindsay, granted him. Lucifer tried to seduce Lindsay to service, but he refused. When Ken discovered he was in the Trinity at age 15, I entered the picture as his trainer of sorts. I feared him even at an early age because he could kill me inadvertently just as easily if he put a gun to my head. But I liked him. He confided me about his hatred for Charles. And I almost felt like he was my own kid. Let's try Arthur Lindsay again, I say. Money won't do it, but pride will. I could say that it wouldn't hurt to try, Walter says, but there's a reason Lucifer dealt with him directly. He could kill you. If he can stop Ken Price, I say, then I'll take the risk. Despite my obligation to Veronica, she's not even a week late. She's in the basement apartment where Lucifer raised me and I intend to raise his son there. Until he's born, I still serve Walter's cause. Arthur's driveway is gravel with a patch of grass through the middle and he obviously doesn't own a lawnmower. 
He hears anyone who drives through, so he's usually on his porch with a loaded gun by the time they pull up. I'm no exception. While Lucifer appears wherever he wants, I'm bound to human constraints and don't have the element of surprise. I want to put in another interjection here. Walter displayed a, a little bit of his satanic power in the chapter with Al. Murray actually has a lot more power than Walter. He just doesn't realize it yet. Murray is one of the Antichrist. And for some reason, Lucifer keeps this from him until he's much older. It's because of the whole thing with him and Allison Price. The fact that he impregnated a human girl. It makes him come off as immature and maybe not ready to fully realize his power. And in earlier drafts, I had a chapter from Allison's perspective and maybe even Murray's perspective where he showcases some of that power to Allison and that makes her like him more, but I cut that out. The balding man in tattered fatigues without a shirt would intimidate me even if he didn't have a shotgun at his hip. Despite his love of booze and probably heroin, Arthur is lean with his military muscles grinding in each arm under faded tattoos. If this were a movie, he'd have a mastiff at his side staring at the new intruder, but he's incapable of even loving a dog. I'm going to take a sip of tea real quick, if you don't mind. I love Arthur. He's incredibly vulgar. He's disgusting. He'll stick his dick in a pig. I mean, he is one of my favorite characters. Why bother getting out? He calls from the porch. If you drive off now, I won't shoot. Mr. Lindsay, I hold up my hands. My name is Murray Groan. A few years ago, you were offered a job with Central Network. Shit, he says. You mean Satan sent you here? I'm here of my own volition, Mr. Lindsay. May I sit with you for a moment? Setting his gun on the porch, Arthur sits next to me with a couple of Miller High Lifes open between us. I never cared for alcohol until I realized how it eases tense social situations. People meet in bars to discuss important issues because it's common ground. I'm sitting on a porch in Alabama with one of three people in the world who can kill me, so I'll drink. If I say the name Ken Price, I sit my beer. You know who I'm talking about? Shit, yeah! Arthur crumbles an empty can. I may be a hermit, but I keep an ear to the ground. You two have something in common, I say. Do we? Arthur opens another beer. I'm a goddamn war hero. He's a rich kid with a pistol. He took Leonard, oh, he took Lester Donaldson's place in the Trinity, I say. And he's probably the only one left who can kill you. Lighting a cigarette, Arthur chuckles and blows smoke out of his nose. He's so used to being bulletproof that the thought of death eludes him, but the challenge of staying alive grows boring... Once your hair starts going gray and skin sags. Arthur still has a few more years of hell raising before age begins to wear him like a baseball bat against his spine. That's why Lester approached him. Living forever isn't appealing once you've lived too long already. Do you know what I plan to do when I'm a hundred years old? He asked. This right here. Smoke, drink, and fuck. By then, I'll have me a robot wife or I'll kidnap an Asian lady from Saigon. 
Can't nag if she don't speak English. And if Ken shows up here, I ask, he could end all of that. You want to spend your life running? Why'd he come after me? I'm not pestering him like you and the devil. Because he wants to prove he's best. He'll find out about, about you eventually, and then I'll give him a challenge. All right. Well, Arthur waves his hand. How much you give me to kill the bitch? Anything, I say. But if you want money, I have two million in my trunk now. When you kill him, if you kill him, there's another two million that'll be on your doorstep when you get back from Atlanta. One more thing, he says. Arthur points his shotgun at me and turns the safety off. He's known for turning down money because his mythos about a bulletproof soldier spread around since he got back from North Korea conflict of 1985. When a man like Arthur aims, he usually fires. I want a new car, he smirks. Leather interior. Big trunk space. Matte black. Do you mind if it's an SUV? What the fuck do I care? And that was a whole last chapter in my book. I don't know what else to say about it at the moment, but you get a, a cool little mini episode here. And you also get to hear me read an entire chapter. So that's one on the house, people. Anyway, thank you for listening. This has been Patrick Attaway, Demise of the Podcast. Goodbye.